Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Hello, Charnel. Hello, welcome back, Dead Bodies. <laughs> Let's get down to it. How's your week, by the way? Good? It's been good. Uh, I haven't seen any dead bodies this week, but that's why we're here, so we can talk about them and tell you about them. I still have never seen one in my life and counting. <laughs> It'll happen. It's like we're tempting fate, aren't we? We really are. All right. This is not so ghoulish this week, but it's it's a mystery, a mystery body. Okay. Allow me to tell you the story of the little girl under the floorboards. Mm. Erica Kana is the name of a woman. She lives in San Francisco and she lived in a house that she grew up in, in the Richmond district. She was having some renovations done. I think she was actually living um, somewhere else at the time. She'd moved out and the builders were doing their thing in the house and they hit something hard and a bit unexpected under the concrete floor of the Mm. garage. It was a lead and bronze coffin, about a metre long, so obviously it was a child's coffin. It had two windows on the top of it, so they could actually see inside. (gasps) They could just make out the skin and long blonde hair of what looked like a little girl. And she was wearing a white christening dress. She had ankle-high boots on, tiny purple flowers woven into her hair, and she was holding a purple nightshade flower in her right hand. So it was obvious that whoever had buried her had dressed her lovingly, that she'd been loved. And the coffin... A copper coffin. I mean, it was a beautiful quality one. Mm. So one of the workers told the local TV station, KTVU at the time, that all the hair was still there. The nails were there. There were flowers. He said there were roses. So there's differing reports about what the flowers were, but there were still flowers on the body. Uh, He says, it was a sight to see. He's Irish. Oh, we got that. Yeah, I wasn't just... was accurate. Yeah, I wasn't just pulling it out of nowhere. Um, and the thing was, the body was incredibly preserved, and yet the house had been built nearly a century ago. New at 6 tonight, a construction crew makes a startling discovery while working at a home in San Francisco. They unearthed a tiny coffin from the 1800s and inside of the well-preserved body of a little girl. KTV's Rob Roth spoke with a construction worker who found that coffin. He also talked with the homeowner about what happens next. While remodeling this home in San Francisco's Richmond district, you're in the back about three feet under the garage. It was right down here. Just down underneath this foot. Workers felt something with their shovels. It was a small coffin made of metal. It was weird. It was shocked, like, you know. They called the homeowner who was out of town. We spoke with her via Skype. Um, On one hand, slightly creepy. um, And then also, um, you know, sad. And then the next thing was, now what do we do? She called the medical examiner who had the casket opened. Inside was the body of a little girl, maybe three years old, perfectly preserved, even after being buried since perhaps the 1870s. All the hair was still there. The nails were still there. That was kind of the giveaway. You could just see the nails on the hand, like... And then there was roses here, there was still the flowers, was still on the child's body. Like So it was a bit of a mystery. How was this perfect little girl there when the house had not moved in more than a century? And there was no way to know who she was. So they rang Erica, the owner, uh, 
And she was uh, she was in Idaho, that's right, while the renovations were being, being done. She was shocked, obviously, because there's a dead child under her house. I would be shocked too. But she wasn't necessarily super surprised because she knew the history of the area. Turns out that the land the house was built on had originally been a cemetery. It was called, <laughs> what a strange name for a cemetery, it was called Odd Fellow Cemetery. And 30,000, stop Googling I'm, her while I'm telling you the story. I stop need it. to see. I know, but there's a warning with the Google. Stop, go- put, your, okay. put it down. Can we put that picture on the social media? We, yes, we will. Okay, I'm But I need off. to explain something to you about the picture. Okay, sorry. All right. So there had been 30,000 people buried there at one time and they closed the cemetery in 1890 and in the 1920s all of the bodies were moved to Greenlawn Memorial Park, which well, is obviously in not Connor. all of the bodies. Well, exactly. They obviously left this poor little pet behind. So the owner contacted the medical examiner's office, and here's where it gets a bit strange because she wanted them to take the body back. She wanted to hand it over to the med- sure. medical examiner. But she was told that the body was her responsibility and the city wouldn't take custody, so she, custody of it. So she's left with a, a, a dead body and doesn't know what to do with it. So she then tried to have the little girl buried, but she was told that you can only get a burial permit if you've got a death certificate, which obviously she didn't have. One undertaker wanted $7,000 to take the body from her and an archaeological company also offered to help, but they wanted $22,000. Oh. So while they were trying to work out what to do, the, meanwhile, the body's decomposing in the back garden because they'd broken the seal on the coffin and mm. the little girl had started to decompose. And I think in, in one of our episodes, we go, Kirsten, you all right? Kirsten, our producer, looks like she's going to hurl. She's pale. <laughs> she's pale. Um, I think we actually need to look at the process of decomposition one time. I was about to say, throughout this whole few episodes, we haven't yes. used the word decomposed. And- we haven't, but I, I, it comes up there. And I, I'm interested to know why she didn't decompose for over 100 years. And yet Within as soon the as they broke the seal, yeah, she did start to. So... Eventually, the city hall put the owner, Erica, in touch with a group called the Garden of Innocence. Now, this is a group of people. They were set up in 1998. There had been a baby dumped on a college campus and the coroner said that the, this baby would go to an unmarked grave unless somebody claimed him. So they, the, this group got together. They just didn't want that to happen to this poor baby. They claimed the little boy. They laid him to rest and they then have gone about helping out anyone where there hasn't been um, a proper burial organised. They've helped. So I think over the years, since 1998, they've buried nearly 300 unclaimed children and they give them little names. They put a blanket, they put a soft toy in there. All the things they use are donated. They put a a little poem for them and and people attend the services, which is lovely. So, So the Garden of Innocence people came along. They picked up the little girl's coffin and they arranged for it to be stored in a mortuary refrigerator. because at this stage it's in the backyard with a tarp over it. Don't want that. No. Anywhere. No. And they gave her a name, Miranda Eve, until they could find out who she was. So a a genealogist who was working with the Garden of Innocence, a lady by the name of Alyssa Davey, she spent a load of time trying to find the identity of the little girl. And they came across a map of the old cemetery at um, a library, the library in uh, the University of California, and they managed to match where the location of the body was to a plot that belonged to a couple called Horatio Cook and Edith Scoofy. Can we just take a moment to appreciate those names that are so Victorian, aren't they? Horatio Cook and Edith Scoofy. (laughs) 
So they, uh, using those two couples' names, they track down a living descendant of those two people, a guy called Peter Cook, not the comedian. Hi, Peter. We found your relative. He's Come dead. and get it. Don't talk to him. He's dead. <laughs> um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore is the one I'm referring to. So this guy, he volunteered some his DNA, a bit of hair for testing. They took some strands of the little girl's hair and it turned out it was a match. So the University of California, Davis, established that he, the living guy, was the grand nephew of the little girl. So they were able to find out that her identity was, in fact, Edith Howard Cook. She had died... Uh, At the age of two, in fact, she was just a few weeks short of her third birthday, but she had died back in October 13th, 1876. This might be a question you don't know. Did he know about her or he had no, no idea about no. her? No, okay. he had no idea right. at that point. No. Um, they were able to establish her cause of death from the, I imagine, from the DNA as well. Um, this was a Professor Jelma Eakins is his name. And um, he said that she died of marasmus, which is severe undernourishment. So his suggestion was that she probably contracted some sort of a disease and her immune system probably couldn't cope with it. So she went into a coma and died. And it turned out, it, it was as it seemed, because she'd been given this this what looked to be a rather glamorous burial, that her maternal grandfather had been one of the pioneers of California. And her parents, Horatio Cook and Edith Scoofy, they had arrived in San Francisco during the gold rush there, and they made a lot of money selling oysters. And then they went on to selling industrial belting and fire hoses. So they became quite rich. Um, after Edith died, they had another little girl called Ethel, who was featured in the society pages, and she was described as having great beauty and fluffy blonde hair. In fact, they actually said, this was a, a, uh, one of the gossip columnists said, she is certainly a very striking woman of the blonde type with fluffy hair, of which I am, I suppose. Of, you're of the and blonde you're not. type. No, I'm not. <laughs> you're of the brunette type. Um, her hair was always arranged in the most artistic manner. Her figure is also very fine and her gowns are dreams. We digress. She's not the dead one. Oh. Uh, she she went on to live a full life. She didn't die until 1935 at the age of 57. And there were two brothers as well that came along later. Anyway, little uh, Edith, as we now know her, she was given a full reburial service. Four men lowered her into the earth in a cherry wood casket, which was donated. And about 100 mourners came and they threw flowers and petals on the top. And they had a um, speakers playing a trumpeter's lullaby at the memorial service. We'll actually put some pictures up on our Dead Bodies podcast Facebook page and social media. But there are no photos of the body. When you Google her name... You, there's a picture that comes up, but it's another little girl. Um, I think her name is Rosalia Lombardo, and she's in the catacombs in Palermo in Sicily. She's another little girl that died of pneumonia in 1920, and her father had her embalmed. Um, she, that's a whole other story for another time. People say they see her eyes opening and closing in the catacombs, but there's something mm. apparently to do with the moisture. But when you Google Eth, um, little Edith, pictures of um, of Rosalia Lombardo come up because I think people have confused and think that it's right. her. And there is a picture of, that's supposed to be of little Edith in her coffin, but it's an artist's rendering. So I don't know whether oh. – it's a rather odd picture. I, it's It looks to me as though someone somewhere does – have an actual photograph of the body and that the artist sort of did something to it. impression from it. Mm. How did she get left behind, I wonder? 
that's the odd thing. I suppose if they had 30,000, you know, by the end, it's mm. like just here's another one. Yeah, and she was up, a small you know, one, so maybe the they truck. just missed her. Yeah. Or maybe she was buried deep down or something. I don't know. But how's the, hi, I found a dead body in my backyard. Could you just come and pick that up? And no. they wouldn't help her with it at all. No. I know. They yeah. pick up roadkill. Yeah, they do, don't they? Can't come. Yeah, but and not pick a whole up. dead body. No, no. Yeah, imagine that being stuck <laughs> what with it. What do you it's, do? It's oh, going okay. Up in the back garden. I'll just call Tobin Brothers and so see. So be if careful they... what happens when you do renovations. I know. Don't get all excited when you see those shows on the telly because you never know what you'll find. What have you got this week? Well, mine. I'm delving into newspapers again. This is a little bit more elaborate, though, this time than, you know, the small ones. But mm-hmm. it's it's caught my eye because it's very different to the way I guess police behave today. Okay. So when we find a, a body and someone's arrested, um, then that person is charged and then of course that goes into yeah. the court system and we details are limited at that point because you know there are I guess justice is at stake and mm-hmm. we don't want to jeopardize a trial but this uh, article appeared in the newspaper in 1882 and it says on the 17th of January 1882 the headless body of a man was found near the deep lead railway station stall Victoria and at an inquest held subsequently it was shown that the man had been willfully murdered. There are- Can I just jump in? Please. Sorry. That's the middle of summer. That would not have been good. Stinky. Mm. Mm. Go on. The remains are believed to be those of one Charles Forbes or Forbier who worked on the Dimboola line of the railway during the months of October, November and December 1881 with a man named Robert, Robert Francis Burns. The said Robert Francis Burns has since been arrested and committed for trial at the Central Criminal Court to be held at Melbourne on the 15th day of August 1882 for the murder of Charles Forbes or Forbier, but as the prisoner alleges alleges that Forbes is still alive, what? it is requested that the said Charles Forbes or Forbier, if living, or any person acquainted with him, should contact or communicate with the Chief Commissioner of Police, Melbourne. Hang on a minute. Explain that to me. So this is before forensics, before DNA. They found a headless body that they assume is... Oh, so they didn't have the head. I was assuming the head had been chopped off and left near it. No, oh, so no head. They didn't have the head and they didn't have forensics and they didn't have DNA. So they're assuming that it is this man, Charles Forbes or Forbier, and they arrest the guy that he was working with that oh. day. But, but isn't that the perfect defence by the alleged murderer? And Mr Burns says... I can't be the murderer because he's still alive. So they put a notice in the newspaper to say, if you are this man and you're alive, can you contact the cops and let us know? Or if anyone knows that you're alive, come forward and tell us because we've sort of charged this guy and it's in the court system and we really just need to know. Imagine if they kept evidence from crimes that old. They'd still be, do you reckon, is there like a time limit on when they can do Forensic testing on bodies and things. Well, police were collecting forms of DNA well before DNA was around because they knew that the science was coming. Ah, okay. So So for a really long time they were keeping things to test once this new exciting science was on the way. But it's interesting down the bottom here they give a description of 
the missing man. Has he got a head? <laughs> don't. They don't, do they? Well, <laughs> they have a description of what his God. head would look like. <laughs> He's about 40 years of age, yes. 5 feet 10 or 11 inches high, 14 stone weight. <laughs> Is that with the head or without? No. <laughs> Full sandy beard. Yes. And hair of a shade darker. Oh. Shade darker than Sandy, if you see that head, or if he's still alive walking around, supposed to be of supposed to be a native of North Island. Oh. I'm married to a redheaded Irishman. So that suggests that the guy I mean, I don't believe the guy who worked with him. He said that's too he's he's too crafty because he's straight away gone. No. Oh, no, the guy you're saying he's is alive. dead. He's alive. And what can they do? They can't well, They can't call his mobile. It's 1882. <laughs> um, but he's, so he's taken the head off and got rid of it. But doesn't it that suggest that somewhere, there's in the, what town was it? Stall. That there's a head somewhere. Someone yeah. somewhere is going to find a skull. Exactly right. Like they found your coffin. They're going to find yeah. a skull somewhere. But isn't it amazing now? I think it is so hard to kill someone. If you're going to kill someone, you better have your stuff sorted. I was yeah. about to say your shit sorted, but I'll <laughs> say that. You better have your shit sorted because yeah. when you're making that call, it's being lodged. When you're going to the servo to fill up your car with petrol while the dead body's in the boot, you're being filmed on camera. Your city link freeway tolls are going off when you're going to dump the body up in Gisborne where every idiot dumps bodies and you just, they're onto it. <laughs> you wouldn't get away with it, Back would you? Back in 1882, you yeah. just say, no, nah, he's still alive. Gee, wouldn't you love to know what went on? I know. They just had a blue over something and he's, oh, how do you chop a head off? I just, oh, God. <laughs> Don't Google it. Awful. Uh, speaking of bodies, I read a fascinating book called True Stories from the Morgue. It was written by a man who worked as a forensic counsellor at the um, the morgue in Glebe for more than 20 years, in fact. John Merrick, and we're very lucky to have him with us tonight. Hi, hi John. Hi, how are you both? We're very well, thank you. Am I correct? More than 20 years you worked at the morgue? That's right. And you weren't a mortician as such. What, tell us about what your role was. Uh, my role was uh, for those left behind after a sudden death. So I was working with the families and witnesses and other people who might be involved in a sudden death, the police, et cetera, et cetera. That's really difficult because you're talking to people that are really at a heightened stage of grief. Exactly right. I mean, I, I was often called out actually to the scene of the death, so I'd be on call in the work that I was doing, and so I might have to travel out to a suburb around Sydney someplace and actually be with the family as they faced the sudden death within hours of the death occurring. So it was very raw and very acute at that sort of stage. But then I'd stay in touch with the family through the viewing process on the, on the dead person and also, um, you know, for months and maybe years sometimes afterwards as well. John, John, how do you prepare someone to see a dead body? Um, you've got to be honest with people. Um, I always basically took them into a, an anteroom before I showed them the body. And, and it's not like in TV shows where they're in, 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 in drawers. I, I'd prepare them by laying them out on a steel trolley and I'd put, put a blanket on, over them. And I'd put a blanket behind their head as well. And then I'd explain to them what they're at to see, whether there's any cuts or abrasions on the face or the arms and such, whether they looked a different colour, whether they had any injuries significant, uh, maybe. I'd, put in a, um, I'd explain that they were often cold as well to the touch so people often recoiled in horror when they actually touched the body the first time, unless they were told beforehand that they were very cold to the touch. So I prepare them 
in a real way, in an honest way. And many, many people I saw over the years saw, you know, quite badly disfigured bodies as well, but they still gained an enormous amount of satisfaction out of doing that and an enormous sense of closure and peace because of that. And there definitely is that thing that people, no matter how, I guess, disfigured or what the circumstances are of the death, they want to be able to see that loved one. They often do. I always give people a choice because most of their family, well-meaning family around them would say, oh, look, just remember them as they were, you know, don't see them again because that'll haunt you forever. But more often than not, if they actually saw the person, they'd feel much, much better after doing that and would feel them at peace because, as the old saying goes, seeing is believing. If you do see the person, you can, you know, really understand that they have died. And as you touched on a moment ago, I mean, circumstances of, of death are not always ideal. I think there was a story in the book where the body was incomplete. In fact, f- from memory, there was just a head. I mean, how, how did you go about sh- showing that to the, per- well, to the loved ones? Yeah, it was, it was the mum who actually, it was a young man who was murdered and he was dismembered and left in various pieces. Other pieces were never found as far as I know. And we just had the head. So basically, I explained to the mother we only had the head, and I wasn't really keen on doing that viewing. I can tell you honestly now. I thought, well, I've got to put her off this, but mm-hmm. I tried to dissuade her, but she was quite insistent. So I, I, I literally um, placed her on a trolley and um, explained what she was about to see. And um, she actually went in and obviously was very, very distressed, but certainly she could understand that that was her son and he'd gone and he was no longer coming back. And I guess there would be those standout cases I feel like as a crime reporter I definitely be, have become desensitised to seeing bodies but there are those few that I remember. Was that the same for you? Yeah absolutely. I mean so, you know, a lot of it sounds terrible to say this but a lot of cases and I dealt with thousands over the years um, I can't remember at all mm. but there's some which stand out. There was um, some unusual ones where I actually dealt with children and the children often you know ring back to me because I've got kids of my own obviously and a similar age when I was doing with, with some of the children that died, and so it was a bit of a, a wake-up call for me. But um, kids particularly um, were sometimes difficult to, to manage because that affected all the staff because most of us were in that position of having you know youngest children. John, do you find people generally want to touch the body of their loved one? Yeah, it's funny that. I've I, I noticed over the years that, that women, um, wives, partners, mothers would often need no encouragement from me to go up and touch and embrace and caress and kiss uh, a dead person. But guys would often stand back and need a bit of a firm push to the back to get Mm. them close. But women would invariably go straight ahead full steam and before they know it, they were saying, oh, my darling, I'm so sorry you died, that sort of stuff. So they would need no encouragement. So I noticed a a gender difference there as well. I don't know what that means, but I never could work it out. But women needed no help from me to do that. It's a tremendous, I think, effort as well on your behalf that you were in that industry for more than 20 years. It would have been incredibly difficult to witness that trauma and that grief over and over. Did you find that it was a sort of industry where you saw a lot of people come and go because they just couldn't handle dealing with families like that? Yeah, some people did. I mean, uh, a number of police officers who who became friends of mine um, basically decided to retire after maybe one crime scene too many or one job too many, and I'm sure... You both come across people like that, basically, and they're exposed to too much trauma after a while. You have what's known as vicarious traumatisation, which is being traumatised by the experience uh, over and over again. A number of people I knew um, basically had emotional difficulties, mental health difficulties after working in the job for a long time, but I guess I was blessed not to go through that. I had some tough times as well, probably drank too much, but mm. in effect it was um, one of those situations where a lot of people were affected quite badly. 
How did you get into working in a morgue in the first place? I kind of fell into it. Sounds really odd, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I've, I've never believed in having a career. I always wanted to do jobs that sounded interesting or something fun. So a lady rang me up one day and said, look, well, you know, um, I've got a three-month locum position coming up here at the morgue, and I've heard you've done work in bereavement before. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, sure. So I spoke to my boss. I was working at the hospital at the time. I said, do you mind if I take three months leave and just go and work at the morgue for three months? She goes, yeah, it's good experience. So went there for three months instead of 20 years. Go figure. And, John, we can't ask you our question. We ask everyone, have you ever seen a dead body? Because we know you have. But can you tell us, <laughs> when did you first in your life see a dead body? Um, the first dead body I ever saw was at a place, a hospice in the southern suburbs of Sydney. I was working in a hospice, and this lady had died. She was an elderly lady, and she died of some sort of terminal cancer. And I always remember her uh, vividly because she died only probably... And Harris said before I saw her, but she was well laid out by the nursing staff and such as well. But she was a lady I remember vividly. You always remember your first, you don't remember the tenth. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, and that's the case for, for me, but Dee hasn't seen a dead body. I still body, have never so... seen one, John. This is what this well, is all lucky, about. Well, you're I mean, be, yeah. be, be thankful for that. You know, you don't want to see dead people necessarily. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. And, but, but, you know, there's a strange fascination with the unknown of it. Um, and I guess that's where you've, had a job all these years helping people deal with it, people like me who weren't prepared for the shock. Exactly, and I think it's really important that if you do explain to most people what they're going to see, what they can uh, do and touch and feel and, 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 and say things as well, you, you can be enormously well prepared. If you just take them in without any preparation, you could really enormously do damage to them as well. It's a shock. John, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for talking to us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. John Merrick there, he's a, or was a forensic counsellor for many years. And that book, it's really interesting, actually. Um, it's so many different cases, and he does go into the specifics of some of the cases. But it's called True Stories from the Morgue. If you want to have a read, I do recommend it. What a wonderful man. On the next episode of Dead Bodies. The bodies in the tree. And the dead body on the red carpet. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.